On today's show, I was speaking to Ashton Applewhite. She's an internationally renowned expert on ageism. Two years ago, the UN named her as one of the Healthy Aging 50. That's 50 leaders who are transforming the world to be a better place. We spoke about the impact that ageist attitudes are having on women globally, both mentally and physically, and the importance of the intergenerational conversations to get to the root of how to combat ageism. Plus, we delved into the old school anti-ageism clearinghouse. That's a wonderful resource that Ashton's made available to anyone who wants to tackle the issue of ageism to enable us to live our best lives as we get older. Before we get started, though, can I ask that you give us a follow on your podcast app or Instagram? Okay, well, that's it. Let's get on with the podcast. Welcome to Retirement Rebel Life After 60. I'm your host, Siobhan Daniels. Join me on a journey to meet inspiring rebels who've redefined retirement. Together, we'll explore new passions, triumphs over challenges, and discover the vibrant possibilities of life after 60. This is about living boldly, not just aging. So are you ready to rebel? Ashton, I'm grateful that you found the time to talk to me on my podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Siobhan. It's lovely to be here. When did you get involved in the ageism movement or have you always been involved in it? <laughs> Certainly not. I mean, if you had <laughs> if you had told me you know, 15 years ago, which is when I started to look into it, that um, I would become fascinated by aging, I would have said, why do I want to spend my time thinking about something sad and depressing? <laughs> uh, and it was true, really. I mean, I, I knew nothing, and it's it's only recently dawned on me that I've really been at this for a while, which is to say almost 20 years. Yikes. And, uh, you know, I, I tell the story in the introduction of my book, which unfortunately there is no adorable aha reveal here. Um, but, you know, at some point it dawned on me that this getting old thing was actually happening to me. You know, and I, I don't I think that denial is is partly because of ageism, but I just think it's human. You know, we age slowly as you're a kid. You can't imagine wanting to sit down in a chair when you could run around. And, you know, I just I, I think. Part of it is just, you know, we just don't think it's going to happen. But guess what it is, if you're lucky. And so I realized that I was really apprehensive, just sort of this free-floating, probably not as strong as dread, but I started to look into it and researching longevity because I'm a nerd and interviewing people <laughs> over 80 and just realized in a very, very short time, I want to say weeks, it was probably months, but that almost everything I knew about getting older was way off base, not nuanced enough, too negative, or flat out wrong. And I just got a bee in my bonnet about why we only hear one side of the story, because I started to feel a lot better about getting older, not whitewashing, not looking at just the happy facts. And I just thought, everyone's living longer. We need to have the full picture in front of us. I mean, that's it. It's the negativity surrounding aging that got me. I couldn't believe comments that were just glibly being made by people when I was working in the newsroom. And I'm a newbie on the block. I've only been really looking at it for the last five years. And I've learned so much from you. I, I read your book, A Manifesto Against Ageism. What made you actually want to put pen to paper? Did you feel so strongly about what you were seeing? 
you're asking me these these questions that I if I should say oh I was you know compelled I I was <laughs> dreading writing another book that writing a book is the hardest thing I've ever done and I thought this time around I thought oh I will just be a modern idea person and I'll just blog and tweet and never have to write another damn book but um you know, books change things. And enough people said, you got to write a book that I did write another book. And I'm glad, very glad that I did. I couldn't find a publisher had an uh, option on it. And I, I figured they would pay me a lot of money for this one. And they actually said to me, in the we had a big meeting, I got a fancy agent, blah, blah. And the editor looked at me and said with a straight face, we're concerned that no one else is writing about this. Oh, exactly. my goodness. As our mouth, our jaws drop. And I knew it was all over right then and there, you know. And I, instead of saying, are you effing kidding me, I managed to croak, you know, I well, I think you should see that as a feature, not a bug. But I ended up self-publishing because I couldn't get really? the kind of offer that I thought it deserved. And I wasn't asking millions, but, you know, take it seriously. Yeah, I self-published with the help of my partner who who has worked in electronic publishing his whole life. So I had a huge assist there. And then two years later, sold the rights to a new division of Macmillan. Right. But what an incredible achievement, because, I mean, the Washington Post, they actually said that it was one of the best books that, that people needed to read at any age. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a really good book. Yeah. And I wish that, you know, I mean, I, I have no regrets. If I were younger, I just turned 70, uh, about to turn 72. So I started this when I was in my mid-50s. I would have held on to the rights, but I got tired of carting, carting books around. If you, I would have liked the review attention. It's a snobby business. And if, um, and it's if it's a self-published book or it's not new, people won't review it. But, you know, I've never had much or any institutional support for what I'm doing. But some British person wrote me once. She said, you just keep beavering away. And I thought mm. that was the perfect verb. I, You know, I, I am persistent by nature, luckily, and it just gets more interesting all the time. And you're getting your message heard, which is brilliant. So if we go back to to sort of, we're talking about your book, writing about ageism, but what is ageism? I mean, that's the age-old question. And, and, and it doesn't just affect old people, does it? No. I, I mean, often people say, oh, I, you know, I, I know this old person, they'll love to hear what you have to say, or I sell things to old people and, you know, you're perfect for us. And I'm glad and I'm grateful and I am perfect for them, um, of course. But... Um, Ageism is uh, stereotyping prejudice on the basis of age. The World Health Organization writes, it's how we think, feel, and act about age and aging, which I love. We are being ageist any time we make an assumption about someone or a group of people on the basis of how old we think they are. And it can be too young, in quotes, air quotes around that, as well as too old. They're especially for women. Women are never the right age. First, we're too cute and pretty to be taken seriously, and then we're too sexy, and then boom, we're not sexy anymore. So it's, of course, a, a social construct. I think people are starting to know what the word is. You know, Robert Butler, wonderful physician, um, coined the term in the 60s in the U.S. to piggyback alongside racism and sexism as it was the during the heyday of the mainstream civil rights and women's movements. 
But I think it, in in England in particular, well, in Great Britain, a lot of people, if you start trying to talk about ageism, you're sort of the whinger, the moaner, the old woman in the the workplace who maybe didn't quite get where she wanted to get to. You don't seem to have a voice. And that was one thing that I found came alongside this recognition of ageism and feeling of ageism was being voiceless. Yeah, I mean, it's there's so many ironies here. I mean, aging is the one universal human experience. Ageism is the one prejudice that every human encounters. And one of the reasons I'm optimistic about the work that I do is that I think in some way that we have, the, may, perhaps that we have yet to leverage, maybe that's just a creepy transactional way of putting it, but we can come together around this experience. It is the first form of prejudice that many white men encounter, mm. you know, and that, that their first encounter with what everyone else, every woman, every queer person, every disabled person, every black or brown person grows up knowing that the, that the world has prejudice and stereotypes around what we are capable of. And so I think there is enormous power, at least in the abstract, around the universal nature of this experience, that we could come to the table to address that. Well, what drives me nuts is an attitude on the part of younger progressive people, some of them, that somehow ageism is like prejudice light, you know, L-I-T-E, or it's, mm. it's less important. And first of all, it is a mugs game to compare any form of prejudice to any other. It's just, it's a losing battle because it frames it as zero sum when the opposite is true. When we work against any form of bias and oppression, we chip away at the fear and ignorance that underlie them all. And in order to uproot ageism, we're going to have to uproot in particular ableism, which is stigma around physical and mental function because we confuse the two, but also sexism because aging is gendered. Also racism mm -hmm. because it denies to so many black and brown people the chance to age at all. The I, I, I'm still untangling this idea, but we I think the issue with the younger progressives is they conflate aging with privilege. And indeed, you need privilege to age, but that is what that is the problem. It should be possible for all of us. The mission of Old School, which is an organization that I, I run with two other wonderful colleagues, oldschool.info, it's a repository of aging resources and a gathering place, is to help everyone live long and live well. And so we need to work to disentangle this idea of aging as privilege to focus on the barriers that make it a privilege, because that's the problem. But I think we do need to have far more intergenerational discussion to address that problem. Oh, I think during COVID in particular, the, the old and young seemed to be pitted against each other um, in lots of conversations about how we needed to um, behave when COVID was at its height. That's what but prejudice I think does. That is the function of prejudice, to pit working moms against stay-at-home moms, to pit Polish workers against Italian factory workers when we we fall for that over and over it's divide and conquer, and it's a huge problem, Siobhan, you're right, that we live in such an age-segregated society, especially in the U.S. 
Well, I try and say when I'm giving my talks that that I'm, I'm trying to stop younger people fearing getting old and encouraging older people to to live their best lives and the most positive lives. And I I sort of want the younger ones to see that, to have a chat with the older ones and say, how do you think it's going to be when you get old? What do you think the reality is going to be like? And you're going to be the older people of the future. What are you going to do to change it? And they still seem quite reticent to acknowledge how profound this problem is. I mean, I would have a less abstract goal in those conversations, I would say just try and seek out people deliberately who are older or younger than you, because to do so is itself a a radical act in a very segregated society, just like it was to mix black and white in the, the, you know, earlier in the 20th century in the United States. So it is brave and it changes things. But not to talk about aging and whether you like it or not. There are old people who are cranky as hell and don't like being old. (laughs) Talk about fishing. Talk about the novel you read. Talk about why you hate dog people. I mean, it doesn't matter. Talk about all the things you would talk about, you know, and you might not like that person or you might like them, but you're not going to like them or not like them because of how old they are. You're going to like Mm. them or not like them because of all the other things that shape affinity, background, and whether, you know, uh, all the things that, that make you drawn to a person or not. And age has much, much less to do with that than we think it does. I couldn't agree with you more that it is essential that we come together in groups of all ages just because segregation of any sort sanctions discrimination and sanctions isolation. And I think if older people and younger people are in more contact, I think it's really, really important for older people because we do live in a youth-obsessed society where older people Mm. do become uh, less visible and less heard to be reminded that being young is hard. Right? Would yeah. you? I don't know anyone who would actually go back to their youth. And likewise, if I think if 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 young women in particular, and perhaps it's a problem that I see it through somewhat of a gendered lens, but there's all this messaging that if you you know if you're 30 and God forbid 40, you know the you might as well just pull over the road and shoot yourself. How much we enjoy being the age we are, and what a source of power and pleasure it is. So I don't think you have to be talking about how much you like being old. I think you can talk about whatever the heck you feel like talking about. It's simply being around people who are different from us, different sexual orientation, different background, different everything that expands our view of what it is to be human and what we have in common and what we don't. Which is exactly why I've I've put together this podcast, Retirement Rebel Life After 60, is because I want to have that platform to expand what people think. I want to show the reality. I want them to hear the reality of what women in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and beyond are actually thinking and saying and how they're living so that the younger generation have got examples of what it is and and hopefully that will lessen the fear. And it will also get people talking positively about being old. It will lessen the fear de facto. I say, I guarantee that reading my book will make you feel better about the rest of your life, which I do, or your money back. But part of that, if I was being completely (laughs) honest, which of course I shouldn't be, um, is because our picture of late life is so grim, you know, so that anything seems like an improvement. But looking at the thing that scares us always makes it 
less fearsome, even if you are staring down a, a terrifying medical diagnosis. Better to have the facts than because the, the, the monsters of our nightmares are always more terrible than the actualities, and especially when it comes to aging, because we only hear one side of the story. I don't love the term positive floating around in this context. I think there are days when you wake up and it's hard and everything hurts. Life is hard. We need both sides of the story. But even if life is hard, you can try and find the positives out of it. It doesn't lessen how hard it is. And that's basically what I'm saying. You know, out of adversity can come opportunity. You can, you know, I was broken in my mid-50s and now approaching my mid-60s, I'm the happiest I've ever been. But that's because I ripped up the rule book and I thought, I'm not going to age the way that everybody thinks I should age, much to the shock of all my friends. I got rid of the security of a home. I got rid of the security of possessions and hit the road. I, you know, I've rewritten my own rule book to do it because I was not going to be fearful. Yeah, I mean, one of the massive data sets that I bumped into early on is the one that underlies this uh, U-curve, or in, in Brit speak, it's U-bend of happiness, which shows that people are, are happiest in their childhood and in later life, and that in midlife, when we are wrestling with the most amount of financial responsibilities, typically most amount of caring responsibilities, we're also supposed to be saving for retirement and ramping up our careers. You know, it's, and I think, and dealing as humans with the fact that we might not ever get to the moon, you know, or be a ballerina. It's a, it's a really <laughs> hard time. And one of the things that makes it hard is the presumption that it's all going to get worse, right? Because you're just going to get older yes. and that's going to be awful. And that's not the case. I want to urge people not to, that, that there's a lot about how a positive attitude towards aging helps you. And I'm happy to talk about all the effects of ageist stereotypes and thinking on our mental and physical well-being. There's just more and more data all the time. But I like to frame that as an accurate attitude towards aging. That's what we need. We need to understand the odds of what's ahead, not, you know, put on a happy face and, and think that no matter what evils lie ahead, we can, you know, sing our way out of them. One of the big problems I've encountered personally, and I'm, I'm well aware of, is ageism in the workplace and it not being spoken about, people being fearful of losing their jobs. Your organisation, the, the old school ageism clearinghouse that you set up, has got lots of tools to enable people to try and address this problem because it is a problem. And so many people, oh, no, I don't see ageism. They didn't call it out. They didn't acknowledge it because they're fearful of their own careers. But what needs to be done to change those attitudes in the workplace? Because in England, you can't get your pension out till you're nearly 70. They used to retire at 60, put up with a couple of years of ageism, but retire at 60, get the pension, it was okay. But now they've got 15, 20 years of this toxic environment. It's problematic to speak as though everyone is facing the same things. There are people who have jobs that they loathe. I have a friend who's a public school teacher. She's done it for, you know, 40 years. She can't wait to retire so she can go make music, which she's wanted to do. And what the problem is mandatory retirement and certainly 
age bias in the workforce, which is paired with gender bias, which is paired with bias against, you know, disability and the presumption, the maddening stereotype that older people can't handle technology, which is total no evidence for that. No evidence for that. I know, but in the workplace, often people are denied going on courses, career opportunities, all because it's there's this presumption that they wouldn't know how to deal with it. But right. And and if you can't get your foot in the door, if the if the interview is over, you know, if you even get an interview and it's over the minute you turn on your camera or come in the door, that's a real, you know, that's a terrible problem. But I would answer your question by saying that we can't undo ageism in the workplace or anywhere else, you know, in the in the dating scene, in healthcare, without fundamental culture change. And that is why I do the work I do. The idea behind old school. Um, which is a, a repository of hundreds of carefully vetted, all free except the books, resources of all types about what ageism is, how it's manifest in different settings, how uh, ageist language, ageism in the workplace, podcasts, animations, campaigns, you name it. You know, this movement is new. And wouldn't it be amazing if all the good stuff could be found in one place? So my advice would be to people to go look at the site, oldschool.info, and noodle around. It's searchable by topic. There's lots of different media, so it depends on how you learn and what you're interested in. The first step for anyone is to examine our own attitudes towards age and aging because we can't do anything. Most bias is unconscious, and we can't do anything about it if we're not aware of it. You said, you know, people saying, you know, I don't see age. It reminds me of people saying, I don't see race. And the little, you know, I'm colorblind. The formulation on that, which I didn't come up with, which I found so useful, is that if you don't see race, you don't see racism. And we do see color. You know, we do see age, and they are important key aspects of each of our identities, and we shouldn't pretend that's not the case, the part we need to work on is attributing a value, right? A hierarchy to how dark your skin is, to how elastic your skin is, all those things. So that we need to train ourselves to unlearn and think about differently. And that starts between our ears for each of us. And then once you see it in yourself, which is uncomfortable, boom, automatically you start to see it in the world. That's what consciousness raising is. And then you see, oh, it's not that I'm a flawed human, although we all are. It's that this stuff is embedded in the systems around us. And that means that we can come together and do something about it. I find myself tripping myself up sometimes. I'm a pro-age campaigner and then I'll say something. I think, oh my goodness, that's ageist. <laughs> and I try so well, thank hard. thank you for acknowledging that. I do it all the time. Yeah. You know, I'll say a young person will forget something or not remember the name of the movie they saw. And I'm like, ha ha. See, you can't remember anything either. And then I'm like, oh, Ashton, that was not your most elevated moment. We've touched on the fact that healthcare is ageist. What are the problems within the, the healthcare and health systems to do with ageism? Right. Well, Again, for a, for a really comprehensive answer to that, go to old school, oldschool.info and enter healthcare, and you will see dozens of reports and podcasts and stuff exactly about that. Ageism is embedded in all the systems around us, especially in healthcare, because it is a certainty that your body will work less well as you age. It's mental loss of cognition is not inevitable, but our bodies work less well. It's not an irony. It's a fact that the one thing 
that all older people have in common is some loss of physical function. The problem is when we equate the two. Most doctors, healthcare deals with more older people because of this. So it is understandable, if not excusable, that they conflate they think older people are frail. They uh, assume that at your age, what do you expect? If you ever have a health professional who says at your age, what do you expect? It is time to find a new doctor because mm. there's no such thing as an age at which X, Y, or Z sets in. And you and I might get condition X, but because you are an athlete and I am a couch potato, it is a terrible loss to you and I don't even notice it. I may have money to I love go being to, called an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> I may have the money to go to an experienced physio person and you might be, you know, not have the assets. So I will heal faster than you. And also there's loads of other people our exact age who can do that thing better than us and loads of others who don't want to do it or are unable to do it. So generalizing by age is always a mistake. And in healthcare, it's really important to call it out because there is no, I, I would like one of the many thought experiments, experiments I would like to see is have your age be on page two of your medical charts. So that a physician mm. coming in, and they are really good at diagnosing people just by how you look and how you walk across the room and your skin tone, and have them form their initial impression of you without knowing your age. And I don't mean to to um, be critical of healthcare people. I would like the same of dating sites. It is true of any of us. The minute you know my age. All sorts yeah. of associations click into place. We are humans. We put things in categories. But the longer we can defer that, the better, because then we have to rely on a more complicated but, but authentic set of indicators of whether this person is politically conservative or not, whether they'd like to go for a hike tomorrow morning or they you know, are, might not be physically able to or they might be older than you and far fitter than you. you know, we just don't know until we find out. When you talk about the, the medical profession assessing you just by looking at you, one of the things that struck me very early on when I was, it was getting on my radar that I wanted to be more proactive with, with challenging ageist attitudes was the images that were used to represent how we were aging were just outrageous. I did not see any women like me coming back at me, you know, in advertising the media and working in the media. You know, I can say there, were, there are not enough older women on screen. Well, what you are doing, which is wonderful, is increasing representation of older voices, women in particular, because women are underrepresented and then women of color even less represented and so on. We, we know these things, so it is really important to make a space for that and then bring people who are we hear from less into the conversation and be conscious about that. You're absolutely right, but um, I will say there has been enormous progress. And again, I, yeah. I hope I don't sound like I'm pimping old school. I do not make any money from this, but if you <laughs> enter image in the search, you will see there are now several image banks, including a terrific one um, created by the Center for Aging Better, which is based in the UK and which just launched a national anti-ageism campaign, by the way. But lots of, of image banks, the Center for Aging Better's image, images are free. There's a hashtag that entertains me, no more wrinkly hands. 
you know, calling out when any picture about aging, it could be some wonderful news, but the photo is either the, the gnarled hands on the cane and there's nothing wrong with gnarled hands. Mine are getting pretty gnarled. <laughs> they they mm-hmm. remind me of my mother's now all the time. Or the sad, my, my least favorite, the sad um, old lady looking th- out through the rain-streaked window at life oh, passing gosh. her by. Yes, you've seen her, <laughs> haven't you? Uh, well, when I was a journalist for, for over 30 years, one of the things that we were taught very early on was if you're going to do a story that's representing older people, try and pick anonymous images or parts of their anatomy just in case they pass away um, and we, we wouldn't upset the relatives. I mean, it was a ridiculous oh, excuse for just using inappropriate images. Yeah. But we now, you know, so I have to say social media is really handy calling this stuff out. You know, we, we do have platforms now. Oh, there's tribes of women, and that's what I love. And I've I've taken part in campaigns where I've held up a sign that's saying, this is what 64 looks like, to try and encourage us to, to be more representative of, of what we're, how we're actually aging. But you mentioned there the amazing campaign by the Centre for Aging Better. I'm just so thrilled that that has been launched. It's called Age Without Limits, and the website is agewithoutlimits.org. Yeah, and and everybody should get on board. There's a questionnaire there that's that's asking people how ageist they are. Hopefully, it'll just make people start to think, and it'll get the conversation going, and that's the important thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, it's a three part campaign, and the first just launched, and it's and it's so exciting to see it on billboards and bus shelters, you know, really out there saying, "Are you ageist?" Which reflects on, you know, what I was saying five minutes ago. The first step is to look at your own attitudes towards age and aging, because we have been bombarded with mainly negative messages from childhood on, and unless we stop to question them they become part of our identity unconsciously. So it is unpleasant to realize like, oh crap, I have all this bias inside me, but it is really liberating. That falls right on the heels of that is this sense of, oh, I see now that I've been you know, brainwashed to some degree and I can do something about that. And that's very empowering. I think the fact that it is a three-part campaign is good because you don't want to just bombard people straight away with everything. You do want them to stop and think, and what is it? What is ageism? And am I ageist? Yeah. And I think, you know, I think there is a lot of, I mean, it's it's complicated, uh, especially in the U.S., which is so individualist-oriented and so, quote-unquote, independence-oriented, and neither of those attitudes are our friend in life in general, but especially as we age. You know, there's a, an assumption that uh, we can, if we eat enough kale, if we, and this is, of course, only if you are wealthy <laughs> enough to have these options, do enough sit-ups, have enough purpose, capital P, you have to want to cure cancer or something, that you can, that it will all be okay. And those assumptions are, um, no matter how wealthy or, or even lucky you happen to be, there are many aspects of our aging that are not within our control. But we, you know, we can do our best. So, and we all know that you need to exercise and you need to, you know, not live off processed food, etc. But one thing we can control is our attitudes. And you know this because of the work that you do, helping people see aging in a more nuanced and positive way. And study after study shows that attitudes towards aging affect how our minds and bodies function at the cellular level. Most of the research has been done by a woman named Becca Levy at Yale, who is just fantastic. 
And her latest study, I love quoting the study that shows that people with these, I say, more accurate attitudes, not more positive Mm. attitudes. They're more positive because we used to be so terrified, but simply who have learned about what aging actually involves for most people, they are less likely to get Alzheimer's, even if they have the gene that predisposes them to the disease, right? Mm. This, this, it's knowing more, it's the, it's stress. The bad, you know, the problem here is stress. We know all the ways stress is bad for us. If you can't find your glasses and you go, (gasps) and it's a terrible fear. I am not mocking that fear. Oh my God, this is probably the first sign of dementia. That's super stressful. That stress makes you more literally more vulnerable to exactly what you fear. If you think, God damn it, where are my glasses? You know, I must have left them, you know, behind the fridge again. Or I need to buy a couple of extra pairs of cheap reading glasses and strew them about the house. Um, you know, Oh, so, I do that. <laughs> right. Well, we all do, you know, or whatever. We have our strategies. I use Post-its. You know, I do forget what I stand up and forget, you know, what I, well, why I stood up. And it's aggravating, but you know, momentarily, like that's why God invented post-its or I sit back down and then it comes to me again, (laughs) you know, and guess what? Young people do forget things all the time. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. But I mean, I love the fact that the campaign uh, for the Center of Aging Better is getting people to to think about ageism. I mean, my mission with this podcast is is to dig deeper into the thoughts and and attitudes surrounding ageism and, and just so that we can all challenge it together. I want to hear from yeah. positive. I mean, social change is hard. Yeah. Well, so if the more positive and vibrant people, I know po- not positive, more accurate. I'm going to try and change that slightly. Well, I, you know, you you do you. You know, it, this yeah. is, I mean, I do think it's also really important to show uh, people with disabilities, people who use canes. I mean, I can't, I have heard these stories firsthand from doctors and seen them myself. People who who refuse to use canes or walkers because the stigma is so great, even if it means staying home. I have a friend who is, you know, he is, he is a vain man. He's diagnosed with Parkinson's. He moves incredibly slowly. He falls all the time. And it has taken a year for his wife to get him to use his wife and kids. They keep giving him canes. He keeps losing them. And in fairness, he's not used to using a cane. And also, it takes a little while of using a cane to get the hang of using a cane. I understand that. But the last time we saw them, he he came in the room and she was carrying the cane. Uh, I'm a little intolerant of that. It's true because because he <laughs> aggravates me, which is I need to work on that. But we also need to represent in our in our portraits of people who are aging well, people who are experiencing reduced physical physical function and and, oh, yes. and de- dealing with chronic illness because we age well not by avoiding those things but by adapting to them. And that is the key thing. It's adapting, isn't it? When I, I'm talking to people about what I've done and yes, I'm lucky that I'm physically able to do it and I've got the finances to do what I'm doing. And I I do appreciate that. But I say to them, just to age positively and to be alive and to feel alive it helps your mental attitude. And things that I used to do when I was a child, like lying down and looking at the clouds and just taking in the the feeling of of just peace and happiness and calm, I stopped doing for over 40 years. And now I've started doing it again. You don't need to have to be climbing mountains. No, I mean, that's another, there's all this um, conversation around how older people 
how we need a sense of purpose and how older people want to give back and all that is true but there's a certain class bias to it. You know, you have to, in order to want to, you know, help out at the local library, I mean, it tends to be a very privileged discourse about people who have pensions and are able to donate their time to things. And they're, they're, I know that elder poverty is an issue in the U.S. There are people who do not have the freedom to sit back and smell the roses. But as we get older, for the most part, we get better at exactly what you just described, of taking in the the positive moment of becoming, feeling like we can inhabit the present moment more. Mm. And that is an absolute gift. I mean, I feel turning 70 was a thing, not not in a terrified way, but that's a big number. And I realize that I, I feel a little less, I'm less driven. I'm every bit as ambitious, but I am better at stopping, you know, where just mm. like, uh, I mean, I'm not exactly a very Zen person, as you can probably tell, but um, <laughs> these are changes not for everyone, but that accompany aging that are very welcome and that enable us to worry less for the most part. Now, if you are sick, if you have no money, if your daughter is ill, you have been dealing with a hurt child, of course, you're going to worry. You know, no one is ever yeah. free of this, but if we are lucky and in the great majority, aging confers the ability to adapt and absorb and take the long view. Stanford Longevity Center did a study right at the beginning of the pandemic. They had good timing because they had set it up before the pandemic struck that showed that despite dying in greater numbers, despite being more isolated, older people were more resilient during the thick of the pandemic, simply not because we're angels, not because we're wise, because we have lived through more stuff. And we Interesting. the knowledge that we will probably get through this, a broken heart, whatever it is, is accessible to us. And, you know, that's, that's a huge gift. I'm just going to interrupt for a moment to shamelessly plug my book, Retirement Rebel. It's published by Vertebrate Publishers, and it's my honest account of feeling broken in my 50s and finding my happy place in my mid-60s. I got rid of my home and possessions and hit the road in my motorhome for a roller coaster ride along life's adventures. I want it to help younger women not to fear aging and older women to grab life and run with it. You can purchase a copy in most bookstores and on Amazon. Right, now back to the conversation. One of the things I love about you and I follow you on Instagram is that you regularly respond to to queries from people about whether a scenario is ageist. Um, and I've learned an awful lot from that, from situations that you've described that when I hear the initial question, I think, oh, well, no, it's not. And then you go into detail and you unpack it. How do you feel about people approaching you and asking you to be able to unpick things so that, that you're able to be a kind of authority on, on ageism? I'm honored that they, you know, want my opinion, truthfully. You know, I'm, I, anytime someone asks me to speak, I'm, I'm flattered that people want to hear what I have to say. That's on my, I should say, I have a blog called literally, Yo Is This Ageist? Um, that's, you could, dot com. And you can send in a question or an image. Um, you know, I, I, I think hard about those. They are often ethics questions. You know, there is no, if I have learned anything, 
There is no what it, what is the right answer for me is an answer that might not work for you, or you might have a very a totally different answer for a totally legitimate reason. So these are just my takes on the question. But because ageism is so unexamined, people don't know, which is why I created the blog and modeled it with permission on Yo, is this racist? Because we're awkward talking about race, and we're really ignorant talking about uh, age. So it gives you a you know a chance. And and I, I work very very hard on the answers. Now, the global... Uh, and I try and be funny. Yeah, no, you are. And, and I don't always agree, <laughs> to be honest. Like you said, I don't always agree Good. totally. But but I've learned a lot from it and I enjoy it. I, fi- I do find it very interesting. And when you're thinking about why you don't agree, you are thinking in a very high level about what it means to you. And that's the kind of analysis. The point is not that you agree with me. The point is that mm. you think about what age means to you and what it means in society. And you're you're going to arrive at a different place than I because there are no rights or wrongs and you're different than I am. Yeah, and that's it. But that ageism, it is there. I mean, a global report by WHO, I think that showed the extent of ageism, really. One in two people have ageist attitudes. They don't realize, but that report by, by who showed that. Well, I'm sure it's actually two out of two, but I love pointing out that it is the World Health Organization that launched a global campaign to combat ageism in 2021, which when they were a, a little busy, right? They had a world, global pandemic to deal with. It's not the World Old People Organization. It's not about oldness. Mm. It's about health. And they realized that the single most important thing they could do to increase health span, our percentage of years spent in relatively good health, along with lifespan, was to address bias between our ears and not clean water, not vaccines, not physical therapy, not religion, age bias. So that to me is the most telling, you know, fact of all Mm. about how pervasive this is. But how, I mean, I haven't even pitched, you know, learning to think more accurately about age is good for your health. You'll live longer, you'll live better. No, but it's true. And that's, but, but I think we clutter our lives with possessions, with ideas that we need all this thing and that these are going to make us feel better going to the gym. Yes, all those enhance the way that we live. But if we can really improve our ageist attitudes, but with these campaigns and by having discussions and having platforms like this, having the tools that you're making available, then, then we will live better will, lives because... and live longer. I mean, I sometimes think about as a, as a little girl, I used to jump onto my bed from as far away as possible because um, of the monster under the bed, obviously, that was going to grab my ankles. And there are monsters. You know, you, you friends, there are two, there are only two inevitable bad things about aging, but they are real. People you have known all your life are going to die. And those are real losses. And and parts of your body are going to work less well. And none of that is is desirable. And it's important to acknowledge that there, there are those monsters, if you will. But looking at them makes them less fearful, fearsome, and equips us then to address them as best we can. And also, the, the monster that you look at is never, ever, ever as scary and awful as the one you imagine. But those monsters can rear their ugly heads at any age. My sister died at 53. Absolutely. My brother died at 53. My dad died at 50. So those have all contributed to me wanting to grab life and run with it 
and do it the best way that I can in honor of them, really, to live life for them. Well, and, and then there are people whose relatives live to be 100 but spent much of them incapacitated or yes. unhappy. So it works in all the directions. I mean, it's fantastic that you are um, setting a, a higher record and it's, you know, but that's where you drew inspiration is to get, you know, you have more life than they got um, to make more of it. But I also get inspiration from younger women. My daughter's 35 and talking to some of her friends, the way they're as excited about what I'm doing as I am because they can see the possibilities for them when they get older. And that's And we've come full circle to spending time with people of all ages. You know, it's fine. Think of something you like to do and find a mixed age group to do it with. You know, if we spent more time with young people, we would be reminded of how hard it is to be young, right? And we would be, you know, especially, you know, young women who are just, I mean, there are, you know, on Instagram, there are pre-teens doing, you know, doing videos. And I don't think there are as many of them as as we think there are, but because they get a lot of traffic, but talking about their end, wrinkle prevention, skincare oh. regimen, and they're 12. You yeah. know, so capitalism, you know, if we can make age a problem, we can sell remedies, air quotes around the remedies, to stop it, good luck with that, or cure it, good luck with that. Aging is not a disease. But I also I also think that they, they tap into the insecurities to human nature's Absolutely. insecurities. The body shop here in Great Britain has announced that it's no longer putting anti-aging on any of the publicity for its products. Good. And there are more and more cosmetic companies like Studio 10 um, and a few others that are actually promoting pro-age products. And that warms my heart. But do you think we'll ever get to a situation where we're, we're not as ageist? Yeah, I know. I know we are. There's no doubt about it. How often have you seen ageist or ageism in a headline last year compared to the year before? Yeah, a lot more. Much, yeah. much more. Now, people say, ah, there's more ageism. I disagree. I, like people said, the, the the pandemic made ageism worse. I disagree. I think it brought aging out of the dark corners into the middle of the room and exposed totally what agree. has been there all along. You know, all the discourse about the presidential candidates in the United States being too old. Almost all of those articles start with, I know this is ageist, but, or is this ageism? I mean, granted, I am I am listening to the more progressive end of the uh, spectrum. But still, that's huge progress. Yeah. It's, we'll know we've gotten somewhere where people don't say, you know, I mean, they talk about everyday ageism. Well, we don't talk about everyday racism. It's not okay. We're not where we need to get, but we'll never get there. We're never going to eliminate all, all bias. Humans are tribal. You know, I think that's what you are getting at. We do invest in, in hierarchies of human value, and that is a horrible human trait exploited by political systems and by capitalism. So, you know, there, we're, we're up against plenty, but we're making enormous progress. But you talk there about racism and lots of legislation had to come into play to really combat the whole problem of racism. And and there's still a long way to go. But it agreed, agreed, but it is human behavior. It is people in the streets that provoke policy change 
and behavior change, not the other way around. Common assumption, my first book was about women who initiated their divorces. And people thought that in the U.S., the uh, no-fault divorce, law, divorce laws, which started happening in the 70s, were, um, once there were, once the laws were on the book, more women started filing for divorce. That's, it's the reverse. You know, people, People pushed for change, social change, and then gradually the law, legal system, and policy networks adapted to change that people demanded. That's how it works. Do you think then we, we will ultimately get legislation in place, more legislation in place than to combat sure. ageism? I mean, there is legislation in place. Yeah, the but Congress I mean, in the more. US passed. It doesn't work. It doesn't seem to work in Great Britain. Because people have to embody those changes and demand that behavior in the systems around them reflect those changes. I mean, it's not legal to discriminate by race. The Elder Justice Act was passed by Congress a decade ago. Guess what? They've never bothered to fund it, you know, but still mm -hmm. getting the legislation passed was a start. Now we need to demand funding. We are talking about massive social change, and it's important at every level to, you know, to, you know what's, the, what's the old saw? Be the change you hope to... See, you know, yeah. it's each of us. If you hear something in this interview or read something in my book, which costs money, but I make all my ideas available for free on my website, thischairrocks.com. Learn one thing that changes uh, the smallest thing about how you see yourself at, at a given age and not necessarily even as an older person and carry that knowledge out into the world. You change the world. I mean, a perfect example that I, I know is, is familiar to every woman and I suspect to men as well. You can be all, you know, dressed to the nines, but not like the way you look or be in a bad mood or mm. mad at the person you're with. And you don't feel good in the world. You can be wearing an old house robe and fluffy slippers, but feel, you know, feel sexy, feel good, feel energized, and you will change the room when you walk into it. When we change any aspect of our thinking, it radiates outward. Maybe you stop buying ages birthday cards. Maybe when a friend says, oh, I'm too old for that, you say, wait, what do you actually mean? You might be too smart for that. You might be too lazy for that. But yeah. it's never about age because someone else your age is out there doing it, right? So what, do, you know, that changes the world. Every, you can't start too small and you can't start too late and you can't, it's all, it's, it's in our hands. I love that phrase, you don't feel good in the world. For most of my life, even though I've got this confident sounding voice, I had a great job with the BBC and I think I succeeded as a single mum, I didn't feel good in the world. Something changed when I hit 60 and when I hit the road and I was exploring Scotland and I ran to the top of the hill and I screamed on the side of a lock and got rid of lots of emotions and stuff. Something changed where I found my voice, I found my warrior and I feel good in the world. And that's a nice place to be. And that's where I want more older women to feel. But my sisters have given me that. I mean, the pandemic did help us come together across distance. And so many groups of older women, and I do see this through a gendered lens, you know, have, have emerged because we are raised to not feel good about ourselves because dissatisfaction is profitable. It's it, because we can then be sold things to make us happy, like another million pieces of clothing, or we can be exploited because we are, are pitted against another group that we see has more, has what we want, or has higher status. So those systems are in place. They are, you know, they are powerful, and they don't want us 
to be happy because, uh, you know, for those reasons. And so for older women in particular, often it is a liberation that comes at a cost that many wish they didn't have to pay, which is to become less admired in conventional terms, to become less visible in conventional terms. But that, we need to change that too, of course. But that is liberating. I mean, you often see it in terms of older women giving fewer Fs, right? (laughs) And to be liberated from what the world thinks of you, if that opinion is that you were never good enough, thin enough, blonde enough, you know, perky enough, is massively liberating. Yeah, totally, totally agree with you. And uh, just a final question that I ask all my guests, um, because I myself call myself a retirement rebel. I just wondered, when's the last time that you personally ever felt like a rebel? I feel like it all the time. You know, I just, I think that my work has always sort of swum against the cultural current, you know, writing a book in the in the early 80s saying it's better to leave an unhappy marriage than to stay hostage to it, um, which was written, my, my manifesto against ageism is for everyone. This was a book about, the, the divorce book was a book about women's experiences. This was at the time where people saying, you know, if you single mom's children would fail, um, you would suffer devastating economic consequences, often the case, and not to excuse them, but not a reason to stay in a, in a, in a relationship where you are being exploited and exploited by these big forces, not because... Not because there is, it's not an anti-man book, but it is a book about how it is hard to have an egalitarian relationship in a society that values men and women differently, right? So you always have to zoom out and look at the structures. So, you know, that was not, that was contrary to the mainstream. But, you know, I'm lucky. I have, I had for many, many years a half-time job that paid, uh, that, that enabled me to do this ageism work on my own. And then eventually, as just as I retired from that, I mean, sorry, God, I can't believe I said that. As I quit that job when I was turning 65, because I became eligible for a Medicare here, which is finally, you get to live long enough, you do get single-payer <laughs> health care. So those things enabled me to work on my own. I am very lucky that I can, don't have to, you know, if someone doesn't hire me because I'm too old, I never know it. Yeah. Uh, so I am insulated from a lot of the the buffeting that people who have to make their way in the conventional job market and dating market. I also, you know, have a partner, um, uh, you know, so I'm very lucky that way. But I, you know, I've just always, so I've been able to say what I want to say without worrying about whether I wouldn't get the job. And that helps you be brave. Thank you so much for joining me today and talking to me and continue being a rebel for as long as you can and challenging ageist attitudes. So if anybody wants to read your book or make use of your tools, just remind us again of the name of your book, where they can get it and where they can access the tools. Right. Well, Ashton Applewhite, if you I always if you can't find me, you're not trying hard enough because there's I think I think there's now another one of me. I think there are a young a young kid in the South somewhere. So Ashton Applewhite, the book is called This Chair Rocks, A Manifesto Against Ageism. Uh, My website is thischairrocks.com and you can find a link there to Yo Is This Ageist. You can see my main blog uh, where I have been thinking out loud for 15 years. You can find, for example, all this information about ageism and health if you search under health or dementia or Levy. And you can find, if you're wondering who that person was that I referenced about health, 
go to oldschool.info, do the same thing. All these things are there as well. Redundancy on, on purpose. Um, almost everything is a free download. And I also am pretty active on social media as at This Chair Rocks on Instagram. I haven't weaned myself away from Twitter. Same. And LinkedIn, Facebook, blah, blah. This Chair Rocks or Apple White. You'll find me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Ashton Applewhite as much as I did. But I wanted to take a moment to reflect on it and to share with you what I'm going to take away from it. It hit home to me that ageism is a global problem and it's affecting predominantly women both physically and mentally. And until we address it, we're never going to have fulfilled lives as we get older. For me, it heightened the need to get the conversation going about ageism so that we can truly eradicate ageist attitudes. And that conversation needs to be with young people and old people together. And campaigns like the one that's just been launched by the Centre for Aging Better in Britain, Age Without Limits, is what we need to challenge us to ask ourselves, do we have ageist attitudes? I mean, so many of us don't realise our everyday conversations can be ageist. For example, we'll say to somebody, you look good for your age. You don't need for your age, you just need to say you look good. So it's made me even more determined to create a retirement rebel community and to hear from you what we need to do to transform society's attitudes. Next week, I'm looking forward to speaking to Barbara Scully. She's an Irish journalist and broadcaster in her 60s who's written a book about the wisdom and power of older women called Wise Up. That should be a good chat. Thank you so much for joining me on today's Retirement Rebel Life After 60. I'm truly grateful for your time and your willingness to embark on this journey with me. If today's conversation sparked something within you, or if you've your own Rebel story to share, I'd love to hear from you. Please reach out through our social media channels or email, and let's keep the conversation going. Email us on podcast at retirementrebel.co.uk. And remember, if you found value in our time together today, consider sharing this episode with a friend who might also enjoy and benefit from our Retirement Rebel community. Spreading the word helps us grow and continue to challenge the narrative around life after 60. All of our details can be found on retirementrebel.co.uk. Retirement Rebel Life After 60 is written and hosted by me, Siobhan Daniels, and produced by the incredibly talented Matt Cheney. Join me again next week for another episode. Until then, keep embracing your inner rebel and living life to the fullest. Bye for now. Bye.